The following program is for informational and educational purposes only. This program does not replace medical, mental health, or psychological diagnosis and treatment prescribed by your personal physician, psychologist, therapist, or other health care provider. Please consult your provider for diagnosis and care before beginning or changing any program or idea discussed. Welcome to Recovery, the Hero's Journey. Your host is Dr. Patricia Halligan. If addiction or prescription drug dependence affects you directly or indirectly, whether it's you, a family member, or a close friend, stay tuned over the next hour as we explore substance use disorders, process addictions, and prescription drug dependence. We'll be discussing the painful reality behind these disorders and what can be done to help. Now, here is Dr. Patricia Halligan. Hi, I'm Dr. Patricia Halligan, addiction psychiatrist and host of Recovery the Hero's Journey. Today's topic is using psychedelic-assisted therapy to treat severe mental health problems. We're going to be talking about the results of a very exciting study published in Nature Science in May of this year, 2021. This groundbreaking scientific study used MDMA and trained therapists to treat severe PTSD. An overwhelming 67% of PTSD diagnoses disappeared. This study is bound to change the future of mental health going forward. We're very fortunate today. We have one of um, the MAPS trained therapists with us in the studio to discuss these groundbreaking results, Charlotte Jackson. Charlotte Jackson is a master's trained clinical counselor and clinical supervisor based in Vancouver, Canada. She has extensive experience supervising both substance use disorder clinics and mental health clinics. Charlotte is involved with MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, founded by Rick Doblin in 1986. MAPS is an American nonprofit organization working to raise awareness and understanding of psychedelic substances for the past 35 years. Charlotte is a MAPS-trained therapist and supervisor in the Phase three clinical trials researching MDMA-assisted therapy for individuals with severe PTSD. Charlotte Jackson also works with Cascadia, a Canadian organization that advocates for compassionate access to psilocybin-assisted therapy. As an addiction expert, she is currently supporting their expansion into bringing access to decriminalized psilocybin-assisted therapy to individuals with substance use disorders. Charlotte, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Tell us a little bit, if you would, about your career path and how you became interested in treating PTSD. Mm, Yeah, thank you. Um, Well, I've been working in the field of uh, mental health for over 20 years and uh, in substance use uh, disorders in particular for over 12, 13 years. And I think what happened is that it became clear very early on that it was important to understand substance use disorder as a, as a field, as a, as a discipline, to, to learn about the ins and outs of it. Um, but I very quickly determined that there was a sort of an elephant in the room that wasn't being addressed or acknowledged in just helping people change their behavior or set goals to make changes. And for me, and I don't want to oversimplify it, it really uh, occurred to me that trauma was a big 
driver, post-traumatic stress disorder, chronic stress disorder was mm -hmm. a big driver of why people were using substances in the first place. And I, I started to see that perhaps we were too narrow in our focus in trying to make people just change their behaviors without taking the broader uh, perspective on why people were using these substances in the first place. Um, so I don't want to oversimplify and say all substance use disorders are related to trauma. Uh, however, in my experience in working with, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people, that's the conclusion I've come to is that there's an enormous correlation between trauma and problematic substance use. I think you're 100% right. I think some of the studies have shown up to 60% of people seeking uh, treatment for substance use disorders have existing coexisting PTSD diagnoses. And that population that you're talking about with substance use disorders, with addiction and with PTSD, they tend to have worse outcomes unless you treat both, right? Right, right, absolutely. And that's, thank you for articulating it so clearly because I think if we're only focused on one component, which is behavior change, we're really starting, we're trying to treat the branch rather than the root of the tree. And so you might get some, some sustained change but if you're taking substances away and not giving people other um, healing opportunities to, to that, that kind of take to the root of what was driving the use in the first place, then we're kind of handy, potentially handicapping people by taking away something that potentially on some level was working for them. Um, even though it had lots of negative, um, you know, side effects. Absolutely. And I had uh, Kathleen Brady and Sudi Beck on the show talking about the COPE manual using prolonged exposure to treat PTSD. Mm -hmm. And uh, talked to Lisa Najivitz, who had her Seeking Safety present-focused ma uh, manual to treat uh, PTSD. And all of us agreed that for most of our careers, we all started with addiction work and we would treat the substance use disorder and then tell the person, we have to treat the addiction first Right. And then we'll treat the trauma. And then maybe we'd give them a referral for a clinic across town, but we weren't treating them both concurrently. And so people fall through the cracks, right? And right. then they relapse on their substance use disorder because the PTSD gets in the way if it's not treated. Absolutely. And <clears throat> so I think we're now understanding that we have to treat people holistically as a whole person. And, they're, and, and, and when we break down these separate categories, we're actually doing a disservice to people because it doesn't respect and dignify their experience. That's well said. How does uh, PTSD interfere with someone's life? And how is someone's brain changed by trauma and PTSD? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's such a, a broad question. So it, it, you know, PTSD, it stands for post traumatic stress disorder. And that's often talking about one stressful or traumatic or overwhelming event. But we also recognize that people have chronic post um, developmental and complex uh, PTSD, which is long standing rooted in childhood. Um, so, I mean, it affects relationships, it affects your mood, it affects your sleep, mm -hmm. uh, it affects your ability to, um, to, to cognitively to understand information and to, to store it into long-term memory. Um, so, yeah, we see all sorts of changes in the brain when you do brain scans. There's 
tends to be uh, overactivation in the amygdala, which is the fear center. Uh, there's some um, evidence that the hippocampus might be smaller in people with severe and chronic PTSD, and that's the part of the brain that um, moderates memory and emotion. Um, so it's it's really it's so it's a broad spectrum of um, symptoms that really negatively affects quality of life. Tell me a little bit about how psychedelics MDMA. Uh, specifically, uh, works in the brain. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I'll just say that um, MDMA is not a classic psychedelic. So it's not one that people have sort of the, the, the sort of hallucinations or visuals. So it, it, it functions a bit differently. Um, I mean, it's certainly an enhanced experience that people have a perceptual change in their, in their experience. Um, so just to clarify that, it, 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 what it does is that it releases serotonin and uh, oxytocin in the brain. And oxytocin is the bonding hormone, which uh-huh. breastfeeding mothers release when they're um, you know, bonding with their infant. So it really helps um, with that connection and the bonding and the therapeutic relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, it also quietens the fear center. So it sort of takes that part not offline, but it, it just has it, has it such that the fear center isn't driving the bus. So oh. it gives people a bit of a, some, a break or a relief from, from that chronic heightened sense of fear and, and danger all the time. And it increases activity in the prefrontal cortex, which allows for more processing, more verbalization, more, um, ability to really expand the frame of uh, reference for themselves. And what we see is it really increases a sense of um, self-compassion. So people really develop or not even develop, they just experience um, compassion for themselves and what they've experienced and what they've gone through and the heroic, you know, path they've had to take to survive. Um, so, so there's just all these different kind of, compo- it's, it's kind of a perfect um, molecule for this kind of work, because it creates a sense of trust and safety mm-hmm. um, with the therapist. Now, of course, we have to, as therapists, we have to be safe and trustworthy. It's not, yes. it's, that's our part, we have to show up and be mm-hmm. ethical uh, mm-hmm. and trustworthy. Um, but it allows for that connection which is such an important part of the repair of people's trauma. And so self-compassion is important. Why? What is going on with someone with PTSD typically? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, you know, I think developmentally children, if they are treated badly, they feel that they must be bad. Mm. And so when bad things happen to people, especially early on, but at any point, there's kind of a default to feeling like that I somehow deserve this or somehow I brought this on myself or something about me is bad. Um, So there's not an ability to really kind of parse through or separate bad things happening to me with me being a bad person. So I think what happens with the MDMA, people are able to get some separation and to see that, yes, bad things happen to me. And that doesn't mean I'm a bad person. That makes sense. So if it was uh, neglect in childhood or mm-hmm. emotional abuse or bullying and bullying in childhood, 
uh, or physical abuse or sexual abuse, the person can feel damaged and bad. So with the oxytocin increase and the amygdala quieting down and the serotonin going up, the person feels some self-compassion. And does MDMA get rid of traumatic memories and flashbacks? Well, no, it's not a, a magic pill where you just get a holiday from reality. It, what it actually does, is it allows you to be present to traumatic material. So there is a stimulant quality to it. So it gives people stamina, gives people energy to actually stay present to traumatic uh, material. Um, it, you know, in quietening the fear center, it gives, allows to have different perspective fresh perspective on what actually happened so that people can separate a little out and see that it wasn't me. I didn't deserve this. And that, you know, that I did the best that I could, um, you know, with the conditions that I was given and, you know, there's the traumatic events themselves. And then there's how people, how we all cope with them afterwards. And sometimes that causes trauma too and distress. So it just seems to, allow people to have a fresh perspective that doesn't um, involve so much judgment and criticism of self. I've heard it said that psychedelics really help the neuroplasticity of the brain, the brain's ability to change, and sometimes reconsolidation, meaning if what you're saying is true, and I am being treated with MDMA, and thinking about traumatic memories and I can process them if I'm in a safe, compassionate, connected space under MDMA with a trained therapist. And then I can metabolize these memories and reconsolidate them, meaning put them back in a box in my brain in a different form so that they will stop intruding on my consciousness. Yeah. Is, is, that, yeah. is that it? Beautifully said. Yes. Yes, it doesn't take it away. It doesn't make you forget. It doesn't, uh, yeah, it doesn't erase it. It it changes your relationship with what happened to you. This would be extremely appealing if I had PTSD because PTSD, the the classic hallmark hallmark symptom is avoidance, right? I don't yes. want to talk about it. I don't want to bring up the past because I'm gonna it's gonna upset me. And then I might use drugs. I might drink. I might hide in the house, I'm going to get severely depressed. But this sounds like a very user-friendly therapy. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, you're right that people don't want to talk about it. People don't want to remember it. It's so aversive. It's so horrifying. It's so unspeakable mm -hmm. what's happened to so many people. And then there's the, an added layer that some people also experience dissociation, which is sort of a disconnection in their experience of of their thoughts and feelings and, and uh, reality. Um, so, so a lot of people don't even have access to the memories of what happened to them. They, all they know is that they feel bad, mm -hmm. that they, they feel distressed, they feel uh, you know, self-loathing, they feel afraid, they're avoidant. Um, so, so yeah, this, this, and this particular therapeutic modality allows people to access um, and speak about and experience in a, th a therapeutic safe container what happened to them. Now, how did you get connected to MAPS? 
Well, um, I was very fortunate that Vancouver, where I live, uh, already was an MDMA for PTSD site uh, mm -hmm. with MAPS mm -hmm. due to um, we have a wonderful local psychiatrist, Dr. Ingrid Pacey, who brought uh, the study to Vancouver as one of the original 16 sites across Canada, the U.S. and in Israel. And because she had already created a phase two study site here, uh, I was able to apply to MAPS and was just very, very fortunate to be selected to be trained to be oh, one of their therapists. How exciting. Tell me a little bit about, if you can, give me an overview of early psychedelic research and how MAPS has built on that. Yeah, well, um, I mean, that's a long, a long, broad topic that we could spend a whole hour on, but just, True. you know, uh, basically, um, there was a discovery or a, a bringing in of, I mean, there's like lots of indigenous traditions that use these mind altering substances and still do that have been doing this for thousands of years. Um, so there was a real kind of synergy between those traditions um, and, and, and chemicals that were synthesized in the lab. So I'm thinking of Dr. Albert Hoffman, who um, synthesized LSD in the late 40s. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, there was, and, and, and these were sort of not known sub, um, substances in, in the, you know, mental health, the psychiatric field um, that were sent out to lots of different centers and were used by medical professionals and therapeutic professionals um, and had really significant results, positive results, mm -hmm. treating people with alcohol use disorder and right. pretty severe mental health um, issues. Now, what happened is, you know, the political times, it kind of escaped from the lab, it, it you know, it mm -hmm. sort of came into the broader culture. And the, the degree of scientific rigor in those days is not the same as, de as demanded now. So we are now right. at a different place in time in terms of what is required to make these kind of clinical trials in this very specific um, ethical and, um, you know, exacting way. So right. it, it became criminalized is the long and the short of it. it, it these, these substances that had so much... Uh, therapeutic potential were criminalized. Uh, MDMA in particular was um, scheduled in 1985. Um, so that was to, to say that the powers that be declared that it had no, no medical benefit or that it didn't show any benefit. So, and, and the door slammed shut and no more money for research into psychedelics. Correct. Yes. And that put it in the same category as heroin. That's right. And cocaine. That's right. Yeah. So you know, we've lost time, we've right. lost time in what the healing benefits of these substances uh, can do for really, I mean, I think we can acknowledge we are in a mental health crisis, uh, compounded by yes. multiple, multiple factors with the pandemic being, you know, a significant current one. So right. uh, time is of the essence. Uh, these medicines uh, need to be made, you know, legally, safely, uh, medically, therapeutically available. For, that, that, for that's uh, what I love about your study that you're involved in, uh, the MAP study, because it's scientifically rigorous. So that makes it legitimate. I mean, this is a, a double-blind placebo-controlled study with 16 different sites, like you said, Canada, U.S., Israel. Uh, 
this has been going on for a long time. Can you tell us a little bit about the, uh, give, give us the broad details of the study design and what you do as a therapist during the different sessions? Sure, sure. Yeah, so like you said, it is a, a placebo, uh, yeah, double-blind placebo-controlled study. Uh, we're in the phase three of that. So we're, we're studying the safety and effectiveness of MDMA-assisted psychotherapy. Uh, once people are screened in, it, it is a commitment. It's it's the whole arc of the treatment is is between four to five months long, okay. and involves fifteen different sessions of psychotherapy. Uh, there's three preparation sessions at ninety minutes each, and that's where they meet the two therapists. So this protocol has two therapy, uh, a therapy pair, a dyad. Um, and you know, in those preparation sessions, that's where we're reviewing, you know, what to expect. We review what the sort of trauma is that we are here to treat. Mm -hmm. uh, we're building therapeutic rapport, which is so important. Mm -hmm. um, and then um, there's uh, after the three preparation sessions, there's a day long uh, experiential session where someone is brought into our clinic, and it's a very home-like, warm environment, uh, lots of plants and artwork and mm. a comfortable couch or bed to recline on. Mm -hmm. um, and people are given either the placebo, uh, which nobody knows whether it's placebo or the active MDMA dose. Mm -hmm. um, and then they're invited to put on eye shades, earphones, we have a um, music playlist that we play for the duration of the session. Uh, which typically lasts about eight hours in total. Um, and we really encourage people to have an inner experience. So to really to go in and, and be with whatever material arises uh, when, when the medication, when the medicine comes on. Um, and we're there to support uh, if something stressful or distressing comes up, we're there to support with that, to process that. Um, and, and there's an, an understanding that we are there to process traumatic memories. So it, it, the, the expectation is that at some point during that session, there will be time for us to do therapy, active therapy together, working with the traumatic material. Oh. And so that's the, and then the next day, there's an integration session for 90 minutes to sort of address mm -hmm. whatever came up or whatever is not resolved. There's two more of those, and then it repeats. So another day-long experimental session, experiential session, three integrate. So that goes on. So there's three over um, a month apart. There's uh, these experiential sessions, day-long sessions with them, with the MDMA. It sounds very gentle and it sounds very uh, comfortable and safe. I, I think, yeah. I mean, we're treating people who have the most severe and chronic trauma uh, experiences and symptoms. So we're, even though we are going straight into the traumatic material, so mm -hmm. this isn't a panacea, this is really, this is work. It is, yes. we are addressing the trauma face on, um, but the conditions we're creating are as, as humane and um, supportive as possible. And tell us a little bit about the results that were published in Nature Science in May of 2021. Yeah, so exciting. This is, mm -hmm. this is like, yeah, what, what Rick Doblin and MAPS and everybody has been waiting for is the first results for the first phase three study. So I think you mentioned earlier that 67% of the participants 
no longer um, di- uh, qualified for a diagnosis of PTSD. So their symptoms were clinically under the threshold of a diagnostic um, uh, Cat, the diagnostic category. And at, this is at what uh, stage, Charlotte? Is this the at the five and a half month mark or the seven month mark? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I think that it is at the, between the second and third um, experiential mm-hmm. session, but regardless, it is ab- absolutely after the third session that we're that's seeing exciting. those results. That's amazing. And in fact, and I don't have the, the exact number of the, for this, but in fact, when we follow up with participants a year later, there's even greater improvements. You're kidding. So it's, it's, a, it's a treatment that keeps on giving. So there's something that shifts for people that then continues to um, kind of cascade out in a positive way. And then the second sort of really exciting statistic is that 88% of people had uh clinically significant or clinically relevant reduction in symptoms. So that's a, an even increased number that, that had positive results. This is so exciting. Um, yeah. Can you tell us what the experience was of the, uh, the subjects after they received the MDMA? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, there's the experience of being, uh, you know, having being under the influence of the active dose, which for mm-hmm. a lot of people, you know, is, is there's relief, there's relaxation mentally and physically, there's, a, you know, a lot of people experience being able to be present in their bodies to just be for mm-hmm. the first time, maybe forever. Um, uh, and so, so there, that, so there's the experience of being on the, on the medicine dose. Um, and then afterwards, I mean, it's really varied. Uh, I don't want to candy coat it. This is trauma therapy. We are going to the root of people's trauma. And so Mm -hmm. it is very unsettling. So through, through the duration of these four to five months, it's we're, we're, we're engaged with really unsettling material. So they're, they're working hard. They are working hard. That's right. This is work. That's right. 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 Thank you for saying that. And, and so um, it is, it can be difficult. It can be difficult. And that's why the design of the, the, the protocol is to have after those day long sessions, there's check-ins on the phone numerous times the following week. Um, you know, that the container is designed to support the process throughout uh, the whole protocol. So it is work. It is mm-hmm. unsettling at times. Um, but the medicine, um, seems to be quite well suited to allow people to face and be present to this material that they haven't been able to um, sort of access and process in any other way. This is wonderful. And the study included people with serious comorbidity, uh, Mm -hmm. like substance use disorders, people that had suicidal ideation, depression, uh, childhood trauma, and dissociation. These are groups that are very difficult to treat, uh, often treatment resistant. And MDMA was equally as effective treating this complicated group in your study? Yeah, that's right. Well, everybody who was screened into the study did have severe uh, PTSD. So right off the bat, everybody uh, had to qualify for a diagnosis of severe PTSD. And on average, um, the the, the, um, cohort um, had PTSD, severe chronic PTSD for at least 14 years. So that was the average. So we wow. had people with with well above that in in terms of number of years. 
So yes, it, it absolutely. And, and I think we recognize that people with severe chronic PTSD have all these comorbidities because that those are, you know, ways of coping. So it makes sense, right? They're not exclusive. Mm -hmm. Right. So where do we go from here? After these study results came in? Now what? what what's the uh, future goals and uh, the future plans for MAPS? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, uh, the goal is to make this a legal um, prescribable medicine by 2023. Oh, wow. Um, there is a, a second phase three um, clinical trial that is in uh, progress right now uh, to consolidate these results. And this is a phase three clinical trial is the last phase uh, before uh, application to the FDA um, to make this a legal uh, prescribable medicine. So this is just part of the, the march towards making this available to, to you know, thousands and millions of people in a, in a good, safe way. Um, and there's also other areas that MAPS is exploring. So there's clinical trials for eating disorders, Uh, There's clinical trials for uh, social anxiety in uh, autistic adults. Oh, interesting. Uh, There's uh, clinical trials for uh, uh, end-of-life anxiety for people who've been given a terminal diagnosis. Mm -hmm. Um, And so MAPS is really interested in and also in groups, which I believe you're um, also very interested in group work. And I think anything with uh, any kind of... Uh, diagnosis or um, condition that has a mind-body connection to it, I think shows lots of promise and MAPS is interested in exploring. So someone with depression who gets caught or an eating disorder who gets caught in some kind of ruminative negative thought loop that they're trapped in right? Or uh, and they can't seem to see their way out, the MDMA would allow them to broaden their perception of themselves, of the world, and break loose from these repetitive, self-damaging negative thought loops? That's what it's appearing to be. Yes. That, that's that's it, amazing. It, it, I mean, it is. It's very powerful. It's very powerful. I think that that, you know, that is the symptom of PTSD, that those ruminative thoughts, we're trying to figure it out, like we're trying to do it on a cognitive level. But if it were something that we could cognitively resolve, we would have resolved it already. Absolutely. And then thought talk therapy alone doesn't seem to touch it. And the Zoloft and the Paxil, the two FDA approved medications to treat severe PTSD, sometimes they don't work. I I think, you know, I mean, 40 to 60% of people don't respond to them. That's right. And so this has really got, uh, you know, it does have that mind-body connection to it. So people are able to get back into their bodies and feel in a way that they haven't had access to. And there's a whole somatic component to this um, protocol um, that allows people to, yeah, to kind of make that connection. um, And they're not as disconnected from themselves and their experience. So if I have an alcohol problem, or if I'm depressed severely, or if I have been raped and have PTSD, I might feel damaged. And I might say to myself, I'm damaged goods, I don't fit in, I can't connect, the world is a scary place, nothing good is ever going to happen to me. And this is what we want to be able to set people free from, right? These negative thought loops. 
That's right. Those limiting thoughts and those limiting experiences. And, and I think to paraphrase something that Einstein said that, you know, our problems can't be solved at the same level of thinking that they were created at. We mm. need to expand. We need to expand the field then. And that's people's experience of themselves and their awareness and their consciousness. So it expands it so that that ruminative, um, process, it, you know, it because of the decrease in activity in the amygdala that drives that, um, people are able to access a larger field of reference and understand their situation with, with much more compassion and understanding. This is super exciting. Um, tell me a little bit in your private practice, you have worked with psilocybin also, correct? Well, I am able to support people who have section. This is a Canadian phenomenon. Okay. Um, so we people have been able to um, apply to Health Canada for exemptions to possess a small personal amount of psilocybin, which is the active psychedelic compound in what's known as magic mushrooms. Okay. Um, to for. Um, Currently in Canada, it's been exemptions have been given for people with end of life distress um, ah. um, and so can cancer patients, terminally ill. That's right. That's okay. right. And I'm working with a small group that are um, looking to expand that to make that accessible to people with substance use disorders, um, because we we would argue that with our poison drug supply, uh, we have an a, you know we have a we have a um, fentanyl yeah, epidemic. We are. And we are losing people at a, a, a absolutely shocking and tragic rate yes. um, that we are, we would argue that uh, substance use disorders are also in, in many circumstances, terminal illnesses, given the risk of overdose. Absolutely. Um, so we're, we're arguing for compassionate access for that okay. population. And, you know, so people are already, and I guess that, you know, the, the, the reality is people are already using psilocybin to yes. manage their, uh, and, but they're using a criminalized supply for something that is really not toxic and not harmful and right. can't be, it's not a substance that you can become classically addicted to. Um, and I know so, Oregon, I think, is the only state in the United States that I think in 2020 uh, legalized uh, psilocybin uh, for mental health treatment under uh, supervised treatment uh, health professionals, I believe. Yeah, and I don't even know what's all happening there. But yes, yeah, something very revolutionary. They're decriminalizing that to make it accessible to people to yeah address their mental health needs. Um, so, and I have clients in my work who, you know, they are, they've been doing what's called microdosing. So taking small doses, because yes. I can't legally sit with people using it because it's criminalized. Okay. And I, and I would, you know, threaten my license. Okay, that I makes that. sense. Yeah. But, but what people are doing is they are microdosing. And um, so accessing it themselves, small mm -hmm. doses. Mm -hmm. And what I've I can tell you anecdotally, it's not scientific, it's not rigorous clinical trials um, in this case, but people are able to sustain periods of abstinence for longer. Um, they're able to um, tolerate um, therapy sessions for longer. Isn't that exciting? Yeah. That's, ho that's hopeful. I, I've had patients from Rochester, New York, talk about microdosing uh, uh, and I think, are they microdosing psilocybin? Yes, yes. that's right. 
Yeah, and at, at a very minuscule dose. Yeah. And it's, you know, if it's a microdose, it's, it's supposed to be subperceptual. So you're not really even necessarily feeling the effects of the, there, there's uh, no trip. There's no hallucinations. No, no. It just seems to, I think Do- Dr. Stan Groff, who's sort of one of the fathers of this field, um, uh, uh, Czech psychiatrist, he talks about these medicines raising the niveau of consciousness that it, it raises the level of awareness of whatever is there. And so, yeah, people have been using these small doses um, to access um, material that they didn't have access to, you know, in an in a, in a, in a ordinary state of consciousness. And then we're not even talking about higher doses, which are being researched all, you know, at the Imperial College of London in the UK, and at NYU for end-of-life anxiety, UCLA, they have done clinical studies using the higher doses of psilocybin and found clinically significant improvements and outcomes for, for those participants. So uh, ho- the hope is in the coming five years, in the next two to five years, that there will be clinics, uh, perhaps uh, psychedelic clinics across North America with trained health professionals where people with depression can go, substance use disorders can go, severe PTSD can go, because right now people are listening to the show wanting to know where they can sign up. Yeah, that's right. And we, and, and, and I, and I heard it said, and I really liked this, that when we call somebody uh, treatment resistant, we're sort of putting the onus on the person as if they're resisting treatment. I think we need to broaden that and say that we don't have the treatments currently available for people that haven't had success with what's available. So I think we need to broaden and, and uh, make more available. So yes, that vision, uh, I think is exactly what maps vision is, is to make this available to more and more people. And to that end maps has just graduated a cohort of uh, over 300 therapists uh, who've been trained in this protocol for the express reason of when this becomes a legal medically prescribed medicine, that there is a, uh, a group of therapists available to start uh, offering this to, to people. I love what you just said, Charlotte. Um, don't blame the patient. Don't call them treatment refractory. Uh, I think it was Marsha Linehan, who um, is on the West Coast, And she's worked a lot and developed DBT. And what Marshall Linehan says is uh, people don't fail treatment, treatment fails people. And I've, you know, basically echoed her quote to people in my office sitting so full of shame and they start to weep. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's not, it's not their fault if they can't recover from a drug addiction or they can't recover from PTSD. I've got a guy who I remember treating for, man, probably over 10 years. And we did everything. We did individual therapy and we did uh, group therapy and he went to 12 step meetings. Um, he did some EMDR and he was still so sad hmm. and he just couldn't shake this feeling of inner loneliness and, and inner anxiety. And he, he just didn't feel comfortable in his, in his own skin and he couldn't feel joy. And he had taken every psychiatric medication that I had in my repertoire mm-hmm. and we just haven't figured out how to help him yet. Right. That's right. He yeah. hasn't failed. In fact, what a courageous, heroic path he has been on to find healing and find peace for himself. So there mm-hmm. is hope on the horizon. 
Absolutely. And, and, and I think we are in, in a moment of, I think we're, we're in a paradigm shift and that the old ways have got us this far and have helped as many people and are continuing to help people. Um, but we need, we need a paradigm shift to, to really address the mental health crisis that we have um, across North America. And, and, you know, really MAPS uh, has, has really a global vision for making this, the, this treatment and these medicines available globally. And to that end, there's clinical trials in Europe at present. So it's really expanding and the, and the hope is to, to be able to reach as many people as possible. Amen. And are there any clients that you would say are not suitable for either psilocybin or for MDMA? Mm. Is there exclusion criteria? Yeah, there are. And, you know, that has a lot to do with the clinical trial because mm-hmm. it's so rigorous and we want to, you know, to, to prove safety and effectiveness that some people have been uh, excluded from these trials. But I don't think that that means that those people wouldn't benefit from this, but there might be other conditions that would need to be put in place for people to benefit. So, you know, I think because this therapy is, can be destabilizing, um, people need to have certain privileges, like they need to be housed, they need to have support, um, a circle of support in their life, they need certain uh, what's called recovery capital, they need certain things that stabilize them, that scaffold them uh, when they're doing this work. And there's people who, who just don't have access to that. Right. Like um, somebody with, uh, who's homeless with active psychosis, like active schizophrenia, for example. Right. right. Uh, we- yeah. Yeah, and, 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 you know, there's some really interesting research coming out of the University of Ottawa that's looking at that. Why are we excluding people who've had mm-hmm. a, psych- a, a psychosis uh, diagnosis? Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily that those people should be excluded, but we might need to change the protocols to make sure that people are well supported and maybe more longitudinally than in a clinical trial, say. Um, so... And yes, we wouldn't want someone who's in an actively unstable place to be taking medicines like this to further destabilize them um, right. because we, we don't want to do harm. And let me ask you this. Um, what's the uh, manualized therapy like in the MAPS treatment study? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I alluded to it a little in the protocol. It's very inner directive. So we really are encouraging people to, um, to trust their own, what we call inner healing intelligence, that oh. people come up with the most incredible um, creative ways to resolve or understand what's happened to them. Mm-hmm. So much more sophisticated and creative than we can come up with as therapists. So that's interesting. Really interesting. Mm-hmm. That's a yeah. that's a paradigm shift right there. Really believing that the patient has everything inside of them to that's heal themselves. Hundred percent, and it's kind of like cool. um, you know, if somebody skins their knee or gets a sliver, you want to clean it up and take the impediments out. You want to remove the thing that is is maintaining the the infection or the 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 disease. But once you remove the impediment, the body itself knows how to heal. And when we get out of the way, and as therapists, we're holding space and offering support as needed, but we're kind of also trying to get out of the way because once the blockage or the impediments are removed, 
which is often the fear and, you know, the self-recrimination and people naturally want to heal and people naturally not just want to, but that the, the, the mechanism in, in our, in our being is to move towards wholeness and healing. So how empowering and, and what might you hear from a patient, one of the 67% uh, at the end of the study who no longer meets criteria for PTSD, what will they say to you? Mm, yeah, well, I mean, there's some beautiful quotes that you can find what people, you know, have literally said, but broadly, I would say that people, you know, report improved relationships, improved life satisfaction, and ability to go back to work, because many people haven't been able to maintain employment, uh, improved sleep, improved mood. Oh, that's huge. Decreased suicidal ideation, decreased anxiety. So just this broad uh, shift in their sense of self and their relationship to the world. Um, So yeah, there's, yeah, just really, really heartening how people have been able to make uh, profound shifts in their lives. I read something somewhere, it might have been, might have been a podcast that I listened to about a gentleman who uh, did MDMA um, uh, for treatment of his PTSD. And what he said was, I felt like I was in a battleground in the middle of a battle and I was trapped. And after the MDMA experience, I could see my way out. I could see mm-hmm. a, an escape. So exactly. how totally freeing. So beautiful. And I, I, yeah, and I think that really speaks to one of the impacts that PTSD has on people is that it, it blunts or it interferes with people's creativity and their imagination. Right. And one of the things that, that happens for people with PTSD is that they're not even, they're not able to imagine feeling any other way. They're not able to imagine a future that would be different than where they're at right now. So I love that image that they were trapped in a battle and yes. now they could see a pathway out. Right. All and of a sudden the, the smog clears, the smoke clears, and there's a path ahead that they can go into the forest and escape. Yeah. Yeah. There's a pathway out. There's a right. way and out and the this. same for people with depression, I guess. What are some of the insights that people develop during this uh, MDMA-assisted uh, psychotherapy if they have severe PTSD? Well, I can think back to some of the, the folks that I was privileged to sit with, and I, I think people were able to see that, that, their, that what they lived through was, was inhumane and unbearable and unlivable, and that they survived something really, really awful. And um, that, that, you know, the conditions that they were subjected to were that there, it wasn't a wonder why they were feeling the way they were feeling about themselves and their lives and, and, and the world, given what they experienced. So just really, I guess, a lot of self-compassion. Um, isn't, isn't that wonderful? Yeah. Yeah. It's so, it's so moving. It's so it, moving. And that's very different than a victim stance. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. right. It's more of a survivor stance. Like, my goodness, I can't believe what I survived. And I'm and, brave. I'm courageous. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and proud. Yeah. And the artwork, some people, you know, that I worked with created artwork and, you know, with themselves with a sword and fighting and, you know, even they would include us as therapists, they're supporting and protecting and helping them fight 
you know, these demons. So, yeah, just really powerful, you know, elemental archetypal material that was coming up of, of overcoming. So people who take MDMA, it's a pill form in this study? Yeah, it's a capsule. And they have three doses, three MDMA doses during the four and a half months? That's correct. So there's three day-long sessions that are approximately a month apart. And yeah, that's right. And those day-long sessions, they listen to music and they go inward, Mm -hmm. but you're not prompting them to retell their trauma story? Well, the understanding is we are going to work on and address the traumatic material. So we don't want to disturb people. If people are having a powerful inner journey, we also want to get out of the way and not, not be unnecessarily intrusive. Okay. Um, but the understanding is that we are going to spend some of that session processing and discussing uh, what comes up. And it, it naturally comes up because that's the stated set intention for why we're coming together. It's Wonderful. not a mystery. We're right. there to address the trauma and it's already acknowledged that we are going to. So that is, yeah, that's a. So you point. follow their lead. That's right. That's, that's beautiful. Right. Well, Charlotte, we're coming to the end of the podcast, but I've really enjoyed talking with you. I've learned a lot and I just want to thank you for a agreeing to come on the show and B uh, I really respect all the work that you and MAPS are doing uh, to create this whole new, exciting, hopeful front uh, for people with uh, PTSD and addiction and uh, depression. This is really exciting stuff. Well, thank you so much for letting me have this opportunity to speak about what's such a passion and so close to my heart, these two subjects, substance use disorders and um, and the MAPS work with uh, MDMA. Oh, it's, it's thrilling. And last thing, if somebody's listening and they have severe PTSD, are all the spots taken in the map studies or where would you suggest that they, who would you suggest that they contact? Yeah, there are some sites that are still screening and there's, there's a, um, a website and it's mdmaptsd.org. And I can send that to you if you like, um, to if you you know have notes for the for this show, um, and that gives you all the information. It, it really reviews everything that we've spoken about. It, it it has a nice visual about the protocol, and it shows you which sites are still screening. Okay, thank you for that. Well, this has been a, a delightful hour, and I wish you all the best and the success uh, in the coming year. Wonderful. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you for joining us this week. Recovery, The Hero's Journey, is broadcast every Tuesday at 12 noon Pacific Time and 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. As you wait for our next program, remember, you are definitely not alone.